Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this podcast episode, we're talking with an expert about hypermobile joint syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Well, hypermobile joints were noted by Hippocrates as long ago as 400 BCE and are common, occurring in about 10 to 25% of our population. In a minority of patients, pain and injuries result, suggesting that the clinical findings may reflect a condition referred to as hypermobility spectrum disorder, a polygenic connective tissue syndrome affecting between 1 in 500 to 1 in 600 people. Now, this syndrome involves extreme joint flexibility, often associated with joint pains, tends to run in families, and is more common amongst females. Hypermobility spectrum disorder has been redefined separately from the more stringent diagnostic criteria required for the diagnosis of more extreme hypermobility syndromes, such as the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, Marfan's disease, Lois-Dietz or osteogenesis imperfecta syndromes. And in relation to the above-mentioned syndromes, in 1901, a Danish doctor, Dr. Loritz Edvard Ehlers, presented the case of hypermobility, and a similar case was subsequently presented by French physician Dr. Henri-Alexandre Danlos in 1908. But the name Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, EDS, wasn't proposed until many years later in 1936 by an Englishman, Dr. Parks Weber. Well, we now recognise 13 types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome with hypermobile EDS as the most common and myopathic EDS, dysplastic, classical EDS and brittle cornea syndrome is just some of the others. About 1 in 3,500 to 1 in 5,000 people have EDS where both dominant and recessive inheritance patterns are noted. Frequent joint and ligament injuries including sprains and dislocations may occur and joint stiffness, clumsiness, fatigue, dizziness, as well as associated bowel and bladder complaints are often cited. Another well-known hypermobility syndrome, Marfan syndrome, is rare, also affecting about 1 in 5,000, and in three quarters of cases, inheritance is autosomal dominant, with a defective fibrillin gene resulting in tall individuals with slender limbs, fingers and toes, cardiac defects including aortic dissections, aortic root aneurysms, valvular incompetence, lens dislocations, as well as high arch palate crowded teeth and abnormal sternal development, including pectus excavatum or pectus carinatum. A quarter of cases experience a new gene mutation and have no family pedigree identified. Well, these hypermobility conditions all have in common abnormalities in collagen structure and function. And whilst genetic studies are available in some cases of hypermobility, but not the hypermobility spectrum disorder, the criteria for diagnosis is essentially based on clinical assessment and is referred to as the Baten criteria, which includes a Baten score reflecting joint extensibility and mobility combined with arthralgia over three months, dislocations, subluxations, soft tissue lesions such as epicondylitis, tenosynovitis and bursitis, marfanoid habitus and abnormal skin with striae, hyperextensibility, thin skin and papyracious scarring. Well, no cure is currently known for these syndromes, which are managed symptomatically. Unfortunately, societies such as the Ehlers-Danlos Society and expert physicians such as Associate Professor Chris O'Callaghan from Melbourne's Austin 
Health are most helpful resources. And I welcome you to the interview with Chris to expand our understanding of this subject today. Professor Chris O'Callaghan, thank you for joining me again. I really appreciate you making time. We had a very good interest or very interesting chat about uh, POT syndrome recently, and I know your interests are cardiovascular medicine, uh, uh, pharmacology, POTS, and Ehlers-Danlos, which is going to be the subject of our discussions today. Um, I'm really very intrigued about Ehlers-Danlos, which is described in the 1900s by Ehlers and Danlos as a sort of a hypermobility syndrome. And I, I do note from a little bit of reading that Hippocrates also noticed people with hypermobility syndromes in 400 BC. So we've sort of known a little bit about this for a long time, but it still remains a mystery to me when people so they've got Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I think about hypermobility and stretchy skin and people that are in circuses and so forth, and I, I don't really have a very deep understanding, and uh, it's really going to be tremendous to talk with you about this syndrome to broaden our understanding of it. And maybe we could just talk a little bit about, you know, connective tissue disorders, you know, more broadly than to focus in on this particular condition. C- can you t- take us through it, Chris? Just perhaps give us the context of Ehlers Danlos in relation to connective tissue disorders broadly. Thanks, Luke. Uh, yeah, so beginning with the connective tissue disorders, there's a, several hundred of them, ranging from the relatively common to the exquisitely rare, for which there are only a few kindreds identified in the literature. Of those, there are two that are anywhere near common that are of clinical importance. The first one is Marfan syndrome and the second is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Both of those existed at the rate of about one in 5,000. So in a population of, um, of, of, uh, of Melbourne, you'd say, you know, several hundred people. The other important thing about both is that they are probably polygenic or spectrum disorders, at least to some degree. And so with um, Ehlers-Danlos, to begin with, it's Ehlers-Danlos is the most extreme. There's something called hyper, what's called hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, and I'll talk in a moment about the different types of Ehlers-Danlos. Mm-hmm. Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, the most extreme. We come back to the hypermobility spectrum disorders, which is milder. Then there's hypermobility itself, which is a normal trait, and then there's the rest of us. Marfan exists on the same sort of spectrum, where you've got Marfan at the most extreme, Marfan, disorder, Marfan syndrome, coming back to Marfan family disorders, then Marfanoid, and then back into the rest of us. Okay. So one note about Ehlers-Danlos, when we talk about Ehlers-Danlos, it's, it's uh, actually something of a misnomer. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is the name for a collection of syndromes affecting collagen, of which there are 13. There is only one that's really common. It's the hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. The others are, are, are in varying frequency. The only other one that's really of relevance is something called vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, vanishingly rare, but it's the one associated with catastrophic outcomes, but a completely different disease from hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos. Right, okay. So how, how do we how do we recognise it? What, what are we going to see in clinical, like in a normal clinical practice? And is it as rare? You're saying there may be only 100 or so patients in Melbourne. Are you talking about the more classic girls down loss? That's the so that's the ones who qualify for the diagnosis of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, so, in terms of frequency, hypermobility is somewhere between six and twenty percent of the population. So it's very common. Yes. 
Um, there are different ways of describe of of measuring hypermobility. So it's it's all very crude, but it's it's, it's common. Lots of people are a bit hypermobile. That's a normal trait. Yes. Hypermobility spectrum disorders. There's no clear measurement of that in any population, but it but I think people estimate at least ten times more common than the hypermobile illness Danlos syndrome. So you're talking about one in five hundred. I okay. suspect it's probably a bit more. So one in yeah. five hundred. Maybe so. Maybe that's it's something like one in every VCE class is my sort of guess at it. Yeah. And so the the ones that really qualify as having hypermobile Ehlers Danlos that's pretty uncommon. Okay. So do we do you think sometimes when people say they have Ehlers Danlos syndrome, they're actually referring to maybe this more hypermobile a state that you're referring to, which doesn't have the same clinical sequela? Well, it, that, that's that's or does that's, it? Broadly speaking, that's correct. Um, people do describe themselves as having Ehlers-Danlos because that's the thing they've heard about and, the, and yeah. these milder forms are less glamorous. Um, and that sort of comes back to the classification system. And the classification system was, has been refined about three or four times over the past 30 years. The most recent um, iteration is what, we're, what, what I've just been addressing a moment ago. And it goes something like this. To be hypermobile, you have to have a score on what's called the Baton score, which is a test of hypermobility in various joints um, that's above the limit for your age. So that makes you hypermobile. If you're hypermobile plus you have pain, you now have hypermobility spectrum disorder. And if you're hypermobility pain and you have a number of different manifestations, like things like um, uh, dilated aortic arch or mm. uh, mitral valve prolapse or increased arm span or crowded dentition, there's a number of physical characteristics, you can graduate from being hypermobility spectrum disorder to the hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. That classification system, those those divisions are very arbitrary and people can be just as severe in the hypermobility spectrum disorder as they are in hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So it's, I don't think it's a very useful separation. It's a bit like, uh, a bit like the autism spectrum disorder where, mm. where it's necessarily defined on arbitrary differentiation points. So there are clinical sequelae from the hypermobility spectrum disorder, just as there is, but they're more significant when we actually get into the the pure diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos. But what sort of things should we be sort of looking for clinically, and can we expect in our patients? One of the things that one of the one of those little catchphrases that 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 uh, they say about these connective tissue disorders: if you can't connect the dots, think of connective tissue. Connective tissue is ubiquitous. It has multi-system manifestations, and so these patients have manifestations in every organ system with more severe manifestations in the organ systems which have greater importance of connective tissue. And so in, in rough order of importance, that might go something like the musculoskeletal system, um, the, uh, I guess, the soft tissue structural systems. So the musculoskeletal system will be the dislocations, um, uh, joint pain, um, uh, things like, uh, well, dislocations, joint pain, that's sub- subluxations. Then the soft tissue structural system, so that would be things like hemorrhoids, hernias, varicose veins, aneurysms, prolapse. The next one in probably order importance is the, va- is the vascular system. So that's your low blood pressure, POTS, yeah. um, all the different names that go for these various syndromes of inadequate right. blood pressure. Then the guts is probably the next one. Um, there is a whole range of gut complaints from difficulty swallowing, yeah. irritable bowel syndrome, 
uh, uh, what might be called dyspepsia or dysfunctional upper gut symptoms. And then, then the, the other organ systems are sort of a bit of a rag bag. So migraines, genital, a wide range of genital urinary issues, sleep issues, uh, oddly enough, immunological issues, a whole bunch of um, atopy and uh, mast cell activation disorder. And that's probably about the or ENT issues would be the f- would finish it out. Is there so it's a big it's a big range or a big crossover of of symptomatology there? You know, I, I'm sure there are people that have got that hypermobility spectrum that I have not picked up that I've missed. And I'd like to ask you what I should really be doing about these patients. But is there any kind of other diagnosis that we should be or any other way of confirming the diagnosis that we should be aware of? Is there a molecular diagnosis or is there some other test that we should do, or is it really just for this hypermobility spectrum disorder, which is much more common than true Ehlers-Danlos, is it just us being clinically aware? Oh, you've got hypermobile joints, your skin's a little bit, uh, the collagen in the skin's changed a little bit in texture and so forth. Um, it's a bit more, uh, less elastic. Less elastic? Bit more, bit more elastic. Bit more elastic, I should say. Um, stretchier, yeah. More stretchier, I should say. Uh, I mean, is it just based? Is it just based on that that we're coming to this diagnosis, Chris, or is it? Is it? Is there a, a blood test or some other biopsy that we should be taking to confirm it? So you're correct. There, there is no. There is no diagnostic testing. The only diagnostic testing that's available is for the vascular type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So when you have a patient, so just on this topic as an aside, yeah. uh, if you have a patient where you th- you're suspecting that, then a referral to the local genetics clinic is in order rather than getting the test yourself because the tests are a bit difficult to interpret, I'm told. Um, the time to suspect that would be any person who has a spontaneous vascular rupture or dissection uh, at a particular young age and where there's a fam- potentially a family history of it. Mm. If they have a spontaneous bowel rupture or if they have a uterine rupture in pregnancy. They're the three big warning signs and or a positive family history. Okay. For hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, there there is no diagnostic testing and I suspect that's probably because it's a polygenic disease. I suspect there's a whole bunch of genes that contribute to your elasticity and I suspect there never will be a genetic test that will be done. So it's the, the diagnosis is made on a clinical basis. It needs a index of suspicion to, yeah. first of all, think about it. Secondly, look for evidence of abnormal connective tissue, which will be the Baton test or all those other sort of manifestations yeah. I talked about a moment yes. ago, yeah. and then taking a very, a very comprehensive family history and looking for other members of the family who have much the same sorts of things. Okay, well, let's say we've we've suspected it. Uh, we've got a, an array of symptoms that leads us that, to that uh, diagnosis. Uh, now we're pretty sure that this is confirmed. What do we do about it? What what can we do to help our patients? The the most important thing for these patients is education. There, the the literature uh, tells us that these patients take something like twenty plus visits to doctors before they're ever diagnosed with their condition. They often have a huge list of complaints and they, they're very confusing when you see them because they have so many complaints that it's very difficult to get lost in the, the, um, the, the complexity and also in the psychological consequences and the, and the, and the aberrant behaviours that they come in with. They come in with, a, for example, they might come in with a four pages of symptoms that they've set out and straight away you're, you're struggling. So... If you can think of the diagnosis and work through list and reach form that diagnosis, explaining, educating the patients about what the cause of their symptoms is is 
is really key. And it 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 um the, the thing that that is most impressive to them is listing the symptoms that they might be expected to get in a single page and presenting to them, you can find there plenty, these are listed plenty of places, presenting to them saying, this is what you've got. And they just look down the list and they'll look up at you a couple of times and say, that's exactly me. That's me. Mm. In fact, this, this two days ago, I had a patient who I presented that list to. She said, did you type that as, as, as I was talking to you? And fortunately, I had a paper copy on the desk that I show and I didn't. So they, they really are, and for her, it was, it was revealing. She now understands that she doesn't have some weird process because they often suspect a virus or they've got some toxin they've been exposed to yeah. or they've been yeah. on social media and they've invented a cause. Yeah. And so they hear it's this. And so straight away, they've got, they've uh, compartmentalized their issues. So you just work through the issues. They're all compartmentalized away. Second thing is they understand that this is not a degenerative condition. Even though they may have deteriorated, it is not an underlying degenerative process. They understand symptoms fluctuate, but they're not destined to deteriorate further in the future necessarily. And finally, they um, are able to make sense of a a large group of their symptoms or their complaints, and and that leaves them able to sort of, uh, I guess, separate other things that that might be sep- completely separate that that need attention because these patients often present with more than one thing yes i see so really there's a, there's a lot of validation by discussing the diagnosis with them helping them understand yeah uh, where, where where the symptoms have arisen from i think you've seen patients um, that that i've shared chris that have mild dysphagic symptoms and I have to say, I never really had considered that as part of you know it just had never really come into my scope of of consciousness that I was dealing with someone who had a hypermobility spectrum disorder. Um, and you know you've mentioned irritable bowel syndrome, which is very, very common. Again, do, do you feel there's anything specific that can be offered to those patients other than validation and discussion, helping them understand what the problem is? I mean, I, I guess anything is sort of physical, structural, collagen abnormalities, you're not going to be able to influence that by pharmacological means. But is, is there anything specific, any other advice you can give, say, for those couple of problems? They're very germane to me, dysphagic symptoms or IBS. Uh, the, the way I approach the condition is to... Um, identify the tri- the obstacles that patients have to getting on with their life and being active and trying to treat those, optimally treat those one after another. These patients present with symptoms in each of the organ systems which are at the extreme end of difficulty. So their blood pressure issues are, are difficult for me. Their yeah. gastrointestinal issues are at the yeah. difficult end for you. Yeah. Um, their migraines are the difficult end for the neurologists and so on. So I do, I treat for example, my my areas I can treat are fatigue and blood pressure. I can have a bit of a crack at chronic pain, but I'm not great at it. And after that, it's off to see someone else. So I will have a go at those that take the low hanging fruit that I can get, and then I'll be sending them somewhere else. With regard to things like dysphagia, I would never deign to give advice to someone like yourself who's seen this so many times. And in fact, as you just said, you've seen it many times. You've treated these patients, and I sort of suspect you don't really know why you do things with some of these people. You just know the best approach to mm. a person who sort of presents this way is X, Y, or Z. So yeah. I think actually specialists are actually really good at looking after these patients. It's just they don't necessarily put it all together. Yeah, I think it's actually very, very true. So it's, it's very helpful to have you enlighten us on this. 
In relation to people that have had vascular issues, vascular ruptures, or you mentioned uterine ruptures and also intestinal ruptures, and certainly you know, we all have seen those patients or come across those patients that are not necessarily explained by hypertension, so you come back to this sort of syndrome. What is there anything that can be done for family members who may think, oh, I'm going to have the same issue down the track? Is there anything you can particularly do other than looking after them obstetrically, looking after them from the point of view of blood pressure, everything you can do to manage their their vascular status and vascular hygiene. Is there anything else you can you can recommend or do for those sorts of patients? There are probably three big things that I think about that I think, well, I better make sure I do this so I don't have a disaster down the track. Yeah. The first one is for the marfanoid type patients. If Marfan's a really difficult diagnosis. And if you see someone who's got that Marfan picture, think about it. If you just get an echocardiogram, and you confirm that they don't have a dilated aortic root, you basically got rid of the nasty sudden death complication out mm-hmm. of the picture. And so they're much, they're, they can then be managed basically on their symptoms alone. Okay. The Ehlers-Danlos type patients, they tend to more have um, abdominal aortic aneurysms. And so if you see somebody who in, in where they're at triple A's in the, in the family, you start to think about getting ultrasounds. The uh, American Vascular Society recommends that every male aged 65 years of age who's ever smoked should have an abdominal aortic ultrasound once in their life. So that's mm-hmm. how common triple A's are. So my, I treat if I see a patient with a family history of abdominal aortic aneurysm, I counsel them to make sure all members of the family get an, an, an ultrasound at some stage or another, which in this day and age, people get so much imaging that they, they mm-hmm. almost always seem to have them. Yeah. The third one is that in um, the, the true vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, where the disease is characterized by vascular rupture, there is a, a single study that's been done with siloprolol, silop- the beta blocker, that showed that siloprolol treatment has um, reduced their cardiovascular or their mortality rate quite substantially. Um, and so treatment of the, treatment of the patients with siloprolol is... is um, is something is something that can be done for them if you're suspicious about that. Oh, look, that's a tre- tremendous uh, run through this very interesting condition of Ehlers-Danlos and um, hypermobility syndrome. Uh, Chris, do, do, is there a future that we can expect uh, in terms of uh, breakthrough treatments? Is there any research being done in this regard? Uh, I don't think that we're going to see much in um, in. A, that well, certainly not in, in Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I think it's been around um, for so, such a long time, um, and all the conditions that we know about in it have been known to physicians for a long time. That I suspect that the we're, we're working on these things have been worked on already, and it's going to be in things like treatment of migraines, for example, the CGRP inhibitors. Yeah. So great for migraine. It'll be things like that. Okay. Uh, the the thing that I I guess it's the, the awareness that I've had over the past five years that I, I think an area, which is an area that's going to develop, is going to be in the treatment or the management of these patients and their the link with autism because that's something we haven't touched on. But there's a very high incidence of autism in association with these conditions. And interestingly enough, being hypermobile goes along with being good at music, being good at sport, being a good singer, and being a good dancer. And my personal observation, being a good artist. But the autism is the other bit that goes with it. And the autism is the bit that is the amplifier. It's the fuel on the fire for these patients. They've got a miscellany of symptoms, plus they've got that autism mindset. 
And that really changes the way they interact with the medical system. I think the, the one of the really big breakthroughs we're going to have in the next few years is that doctors are going to be much better at recognising autism in our patients and often in ourselves, and we're going to become much better at looking after it. Chris, thank you very much for that insight and excellent expose, not only of POTS, but also of this, uh, this interesting syndrome. It's been very, very uh, generous of you to chat with us again today. Chris, thank you very much. My pleasure, Luke. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for joining me in this conversation with Associate Professor Chris O'Callaghan on the Joint Hypermobility Syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Chris has an incredible wealth of knowledge and he's also very enthusiastic about the diagnosis and management of these patients. So I'm sure would welcome you reaching out to him if you do need further advice. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au.